everyone. I hope you're having a fantastic day. You're listening to Tech Fest Talks, a podcast by students for students. And I am Arushi with a brand new episode for all the science lovers and all the curious minds about diabetes with Professor Morella Delibogovic, who is the Dean for Industrial Engagement in Research and Knowledge Transfer at the University of Aberdeen and the Director of the Aberdeen Cardiovascular and Diabetes Centre. How are you, Professor Morella? I'm fine. Thank you so much for the invitation today. Great. Now let's get started. So I understand you did your PhD at Dundee University and undertook work for your postdoctoral fellowship at Harvard University which was on protein tyrosine phosphatases and their role in obesity and diabetes. Before we begin on your research, could you provide a short overview about the link between obesity and diabetes? Yes, so when we talk about obesity and diabetes, what we really talk about is type 2 diabetes. So it's been known for quite a number of years now that what we eat really matters in regards to developing secondary complications, such as type 2 diabetes or heart disease or or even risk for cancer. Mm -hmm. And it really is because as we keep eating the diets that are rich in fats, especially saturated fats, and a lot of protein, which is meat, and this affects how our body responds to it. So our pancreas, for example, which would normally, you know, produce the insulin, which will lower blood sugar levels has to work so much harder because we keep eating more and more therefore the pancreas has to kind of work a lot harder therefore kind of exhausting the body and leading to the state that is called insulin resistance whereby our body stops responding to the insulin itself therefore leading to type 2 diabetes. I see. So what are protein tyrosine phosphatases, which are also known as PTP? Yeah, so that's a very good question, and I'm going to try and be as clear as possible. Um, so it's it's quite a timely question, actually, because um, Eddie Fisher, who uh, was a co-jointly awarded the Nobel Prize for the discovery or characterization of reversible phosphorylation, just passed away a few days ago. And what reversible phosphorylation is in the body is basically we have um, a number of proteins in our body that communicate with each other. So all the cells in our body and all the tissues in the body communicate with each other. And these important proteins are called kinases and phosphatases. And what they do is they kind of have a yin-yang process. So kinases put phosphates on proteins, which normally activate um, kind of communication channels. And phosphatases take away the phosphates. Therefore, normally they will kind of shut down the information channel. So if you think about you and I speaking today, this is a conversation and this is the same way or communicational signal construction. So in the same way in the body, if cells are communicating with each other, they have the signal transduction or communication. So what the phosphatases do in general, they kind of shut down that conversation. So in kind of terms of diabetes, if we think about insulin, how insulin talks to the cells in the body, the insulin activates its own molecules or um, signaling proteins. And what the phosphatases do, they come in and switch it off. So what we are trying to understand is if we can get rid of these negative regulators, can we improve diabetes? Wow, this research seems so important. I think you've kind of covered this. So how is PTP linked to diabetes and obesity then? 
Uh-huh. So um, this kind of stems, uh, the research stems from the 1980s. So um, the phosphatase I work on specifically as a, as a new kind of target for diabetes research was purified from placenta in the late 1980s. And it was found to be kind of um, in increased levels in certain types of cancer. But then what was found um, after that is not only was it elevated in cancer, but it was also elevated in type 2 diabetes, as well as heart disease. So this is why, um, you know, I started my research in 2003 at Harvard Medical School, trying to understand if we can maybe switch off the action of this phosphatase or this enzyme. Can we improve type 2 diabetes, but also heart disease and, and even certain types of cancer? Wow, that's so cool. So as you've done this research a good few years ago, has the impact of this research matched your expectations? So that's a really good question you asked me. So the research has started quite a few years ago, but the research is still ongoing. And that's one nice thing about science in general, that is that our research never stops. Just as we think we have found an answer to a question, it kind of unearths a whole lot of new questions that we're pursuing. So we found in early 2000s that, yes, if we can kind of silence this phosphatase in our liver cells or in our muscle cells, that it would be a good um, way of treating type 2 diabetes. But then subsequently over the years, we have found that actually if we could silence this phosphatase with drugs that would inhibit it, that we could improve atherosclerosis, for example. So it's actually an ever-evolving system and at the moment we just got new funding to look at the uh, possibility of using inhibitors of this enzyme for treatment of diabetic retinopathy which is loss of eyesight due to diabetes so the research hasn't actually stopped it is still ongoing and i can see it going for a while well it's amazing to see how different treatments can find links to different diseases everywhere in the body. In 2007, you came to the University of Aberdeen to undertake more research relating to diabetes and its complications. So what interested you to do diabetic research in the first place? Um, another interesting question from you. I've, I've always been interested in doing diabetes research from my undergraduate um, studies, actually, because, first of all, there have been quite a few cases of both type 1 and type 2 diabetes in my family. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, I, I come from Bosnia and Herzegovina, and the, you know, the prevalence of diabetes is really high probably due to kind of poor nutrition um, that we can see in a developed uh, society. So I've always wanted to work on diabetes. Um, And when I was at Edinburgh University for my undergraduate studies, there were no projects offered um, to do diabetes research apart for two in my final year of studies. And they were both um, the GlaxoSmithKline or SmithKline-Beecham Pharmaceuticals at the time. So that meant that I had to leave Edinburgh to go to the company to do the diabetes research. But I was so glad I did because that really kind of um, reinforced how much I loved working on diabetes. So when I was in SmithKline-Beecham at the time, um, FDA had just approved um, a, a new type 2 diabetes drug called Avandia. Um, it's since been removed, actually. Um, but the excitement that, it, that was there in the department was just amazing. So that's kind of how my path led me to doing a PhD and then doing a postdoctoral fellowship. And now I'm a professor in diabetic medicine. So that's my journey through diabetes. 
and it's still ongoing. That's so nice to hear that you managed to work and you're still working in things that are close to you. Yeah, that's a lovely thing about being a scientist. <laughs> mm -hmm. So now you're researching about a, a molecular link between diabetes and Alzheimer's disease. So how are they interlinked? So one of the things that is really important if you're a scientist and interested in science in general is not only to go to presentations and talks in your own field, mm -hmm. but also go to presentations that have, you think have nothing to do with your field. So I went to a presentation um, that was all about Alzheimer's disease and neurodegenerative disorders. And one of my colleagues, Professor Bettina Platt, who is a, a translational neuroscientist, gave a really interesting talk about their Alzheimer's preclinical models. But all the proteins she kept talking about were actually proteins I was interested in from the diabetes side. So at the end of the presentations, when we had coffee, I approached her and I said, have you ever looked at diabetes in these models? And she said, no. And actually, that's how the collaboration started. And what we had discovered, and there was a whole field of scientists working on this link between Alzheimer's disease and diabetes. And there have been big human studies um, in California and Rotterdam as well, to show that patients who have Alzheimer's disease have really high prevalence of metabolic disorders um, associated with type 2 diabetes. And everybody appears to be link looking for this missing link. What is the molecular signal that kind of links diabetes to Alzheimer's? So we've spent now quite a number of years trying to understand that as well. This variety is so exciting. It's absolutely great how you manage to make those links as diabetes and neurological disorders really don't seem to be related at first glance. Yeah, so uh, yeah, at first glance, they don't. But then when one starts looking at things, there have been studies in the United States where an internasal insulin application, for example, had been shown to improve cognition in people who had mild cognitive disorder. And not only um, Alzheimer's, when we think about Huntington's disease as well, there are some of um, you know molecular links, again, that are linked to metabolism. So as I say, it's all communication, just like you and I are speaking in English at the moment. Right. Um, you know, cells speak in a different language as well. And, you know, there are communication channels and different things that connect them up. And if, if one is either overstated or if one is gone, that can actually lead to pathology, not just in one disease, but several different diseases. Wow, that's a beautiful analogy. So you have done so much research and gained so much education. What has been your motivation to continue learning? Well, um... I came to Scotland in 1994 and I came from Bosnia and Herzegovina in the middle of the Bosnian war. And even in the war zone, um, those two years I lived in a war zone, I went to school every day and the shelling was on. And I still remember one day a shell landed on our school and we just continued with the lessons. I think that desire to learn is just so strong in all of us, but certainly it's definitely strong very very much so in me. So to continue my education, um, in the end, I had to leave Bosnia and I came to Scotland. And I just felt like I'd been given this opportunity to learn and educate myself, but also educate others. And I don't think that will ever go away, to be honest. That is so inspirational. <laughs> Thank you. So since you've conducted research in America and in Aberdeen, what differences have you noticed? So, for example, within the infrastructure, the work culture or support systems? Yeah, uh, 
big differences, I, I definitely have to say. So um, when I first moved to the States in 2003, I was absolutely overwhelmed by, you know, Harvard Medical School is really a city by itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say it's probably the size of Aberdeen. I mean, that's exaggeration, but it's massive. The number of buildings and institutes and scientists is unbelievable. And it is absolutely amazing to work in that kind of environment. Um, I felt just by being there, I was exposed to so much intellectual input that by absorption, surely I'll absorb some of it. Uh, So it it was absolutely superb. I was there for four years and the infrastructure was really great. Equipment was great. People were lovely, I have to say, who I worked with. But when I moved to Aberdeen, there were also massive advantages about being in Aberdeen. And um, the university is obviously not as big as Harvard Medical School, but everybody's so collaborative. So, for example, in Boston, if I wanted to do an experiment, I needed to pre-book a piece of equipment. A lot of my colleagues would have to book equipment between two o'clock in the morning and five o'clock in the morning because it was the only time that it wasn't being used. While here. I can easily get equipment access during normal working hours. And research culture is so much better. Mm-hmm. People are really kind of engaged. You're not um, you're not expected to work 24-7. There is kind of that recognition that to be a good thinker and a good scientist, you do also need to take a break. Um, so I think there's a really good balance being back in UK, kind of between the work-life relationship. Uh, so each one has its positives and negatives, and I think it's really important. And I would recommend it to everybody to work in both environments and just see which one you enjoy better. And you'll also learn a lot from from doing both. Wow! So there's pros and cons of all places, and it's so true that international workplaces vary by so much. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So you participate in national funding committees. What are your views on the level of funding for diabetic research today? Huh, yes. So um, a lot of the diabetes research really depends on, on being funded by charities such as Diabetes UK or Diabetes Wellness Research Foundation. I just feel that there should definitely be a lot more investment in diabetes research from the government. Um, so, you know, all these charities are not very big charities. So the money that comes to them is by people running marathons and doing bake sales, etc., which has been a disaster in COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the funding has completely plummeted when we think about also British Heart Foundation, the shops being shut for so long. Um, so I do feel that we should definitely have a lot more investment because these diseases are only increasing. They're increasing exponentially and they have been increasing for the last few decades. So I do feel strongly that we should have a lot more investment into kind of understanding the causes of the disease. Because if we can actually treat the disease before it's properly set in, then we don't have to pay later on for the complications. So at the moment, you know, the the amount of money that the NHS has to spend on the complications that are associated with diabetes and and being overweight and obese are ginormous. So I hope my my, uh, opinion is quite clear that there should be a lot more money in research and kind of discovery research um, area. Yeah, that's very clear, actually. So research is more like an investment to prevent costs for the future then? 
Absolutely, absolutely. I don't think we should get to the stage where we have to be treating, you know, the complications. If we can get there early, not only will we save money on healthcare, but we'll improve people's um, lives. We'll improve the lives of of the family who live with the patients and have to take care of them. Um, And there are so many things at play. Mm, Wow. So could you please explain your current role as the Director of Aberdeen Cardiovascular and Diabetes Centre? So, yeah, I think the name says it all. We are a a group of scientists, so discovery scientists and clinical scientists working together with our uh, early career researchers to really try and kind of implement what we find at the bench side, back to bedside and then back again. So this, the whole vision behind creation of the centre was to have an impact on patient lives. Mm -hmm and education and how we diagnose people in the first place. So in 2018, we created the center where we brought together all of us under one umbrella. And what that meant is that it's given us a really strong voice and the direction of where we are and where we want to go. So we take on board um, kind of patient feedback. What do patients suffer from? You know, what is a real problem and how can we then come together to answer that? So it's allowed us to go to kind of larger funders as well and say, mm-hmm. here are a number of us, 30, 30 uh, principal investigators who are working on this aspect or that aspect of diabetes and as well as heart disease. How can we help you deliver better kind of treatment diagnosis and ultimately you know improve lives of of patients so um it has been a big initiative which has grown over time but it's only grown because everybody's invested in it whoa so would you say your impact is more local or global well uh, we started off by having a local impact and then trying to have an impact in the Northeast. So for example, we had a recent initiative last year where we tried to come together with University of Dundee Medical School to go for a larger bit of having doctoral training centers so that we can train future researchers on diabetes and heart disease. So, you know, we've started from Aberdeen, now Northeast, and the idea is that our research is actually global. So. Everybody within the center publishes research that is peer-reviewed internationally. And actually, you know, what we find and disseminate is important uh, worldwide. So I'm hoping that what we are doing at the moment is not just limited to the local area, but actually is kind of global. Um, and that has been a nice thing about being able to do these kind of virtual presentations, etc., so that our students as well can get that exposure back from global presentations and take that um, into kind of their labs in Aberdeen and then do further research. It would be amazing to have your work go international then, I imagine. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. So as you are an advocate for increasing public interaction within research and academia, what tips do you have for secondary students like me to get involved with such exciting research? Well, to start with, I think you're doing an amazing job doing this podcast and doing Explorathon. This is exactly what students should be doing to kind of engage better and become, you know, part of this culture that we are all in. Um, But I very often, or pre-COVID, took in students from secondary schools. They normally came in through Aberdeen City Council, kind of, um, you know, um, the weekly placements that are are normally done, I think, S3 or S4. Um, So that's kind of the best way to find a laboratory to do some kind of research experience it's normally a week to see how much you like it and which 
aspects you like and which aspects you maybe don't like. Mm -hmm. I would also suggest for students to be proactive and kind of look up on our website and see what we do and then see if they, you know, if you can actually get a bit of work experience. There's nothing better than getting a little bit of work experience first for your CV and secondly, to kind of make those career choices. Wow, these opportunities seem so beneficial and you've given great tips. I'll be sure to implement some of those. Good. <laughs> so if you could invent something new to help people manage diabetes, what would it be? Yeah, you know, that's a, that's a really tricky one. Um, and, um, you know, thinking about it and what's going on at the moment. So we've had a lot of um, progress over the past several decades from, you know, injecting with metal syringes, metal needles, sorry, to actually having continuous glucose monitoring, insulin pumps or, you know, artificial pancreas so all of these things are evolving already but what looks quite exciting and what i would love um, to happen is is the new vaccine uh, against type 1 diabetes so um the new research kind of the way it's is going is, is all looking at the role of the immune system and how our immune system responds and is important in development of type 1 diabetes so if i had my magic wand i would love to accelerate the efforts that are currently underway to to come up with the vaccine to actually prevent type 1 development that sounds like a really interesting advancement so for our last question do you think a complete eradication of diabetes is possible? If so, when could this happen? Well, um, diabetes is a, is, a, is a wide term. So we have type 1 diabetes, but we also have type 2, and there's quite a few other subtypes of diabetes. So if, if I think about type 1 diabetes, if the vaccine efforts are successful one day, there is a hope that we will live, uh, you know, there will be a, a, um, a disease that we could eradicate. I'm really hopeful of that. But with type 2, it's a little bit more complicated because um, we know very well that diet and nutrition, exercise, all of these play a massive role in development of type 2 diabetes in the first place. So if we were to listen to the advice that we are given um, in regards to increasing our exercise levels, improving what we eat, eat less but healthier, or eat the same amount but healthier, that should actually have a direct impact on type 2 diabetes itself. So yeah, I live, I live with the hope that there is going to be a future where diabetes can do no harm, as Diabetes UK would say. Mm, I guess that's why type 2 diabetes is often known as a preventable disease then. So in, in, a, in a lot of cases, uh, about 80% of cases, it has been shown that diet and exercise, if we improve those, we could actually normalize glucose levels. There are, however, about 20% where that is not the case. And there are a number of complicated things such as genetics and other factors that come into place. So it's not all about diet and exercise, but in about 80% of the cases, that is the case and that could be preventable. Wow. So thank you so much for your time. And it was absolutely great to speak to you. Thank you so much for the invitation and good luck with your project and your career.